Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live. We're going to take a bite of the Big Apple with the great columnist from the New York Post. He's Mike Vaccaro. Uh, Mike, I always find that movie references to real life, sometimes you can draw the association. And I was thinking today about the giant situation, and it made me think of the movie, and made me think of The Godfather, uh, when they had that theme, the meeting of the five families and... Don Corleone stands up and he goes, how did things get so far? Well, in, if you remember that scene. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, and it made me think of the Giants in, in sports jargon. I think you can't say it really got so far because it's, relatively speaking, it, it didn't take a long time. And I'm wondering, over the past five seasons, here are the Giants that have uh, a record of 22-59. and 59. That's tied for the worst over a five-year period with... Yes, the New York Jets. And so yeah, it seems kind of kind of coincidental. So uh, John Mara has a, uh, has a meeting, I think, on Monday first with Joe Judge, and then Tuesday has another meeting, and he fires him. But we let, let's take things in proper order. Before you get a coach, you probably got to get a general manager, and then in turn, the head coach. So with all of the general manager candidates that they're talking to, this process is going to take a while. It's going to take a while because I mean it's, it's such an important hire that they have to uh, they have to get it right. And you know you're not going to get it right by just uh, you know hiring the first guy you fall in love with during an interview process. So yeah, I mean it's 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 going to take it's, it's, it should take a while. I mean it should take uh, enough time to where the Giants believe they're hiring the right guy. And you know however long that takes. I think that's the important thing. Don't you know? You can't shortchange this process. This is one process you have to play out to its fullest uh, in order to be able to maximize what you need to do here. And they need, they need to do a lot. They need the right guy. There's so much work that needs to be done. They can't entrust it to a guy who's not completely capable of the job, and that equals the task. Having said that, the Giants have been fiercely loyal to people, and the general manager. General manager's job has come from within the organization. I'm old enough to remember in 1979, uh, there was this uh, infighting in the Giants and the family. And they went out and used it. They actually had Pete Roselle broker a deal that brought George Young from Baltimore to the Giants. Since then, it's incredible about the, amazing, the amount of turnover there's been. Yes, and... and uh... You know, look, I mean, the Maras are traditionally not a family that likes to, they want to look for reasons to keep guys employed, not not to let them go. And it makes them, it probably makes, you know, for a good boss, sometimes it makes for a, for a poor football operation, because sometimes you do need to kind of be cold-blooded in this business. And I do think that sometimes the Maras have been lacking in that. But, 
and and Steve Tish. I mean, you know, it's 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 funny. I mean, the Tish the Tish part of the ownership sometimes gets overlooked, but um, you know, so but but, but look, I mean, I, I I think they do what they had to do. I I think in I think uh, you know for both men in their heart of hearts they would have preferred to have been able to figure out a way to keep the coach. But if you're going to do this the right way, they had to start over again the entire way. I mean, you, you can't go halfway. And I think I, I think all you got to do is look at the Jets and see how often they've tried to do that, where the coach and the GM weren't on the same schedule, and see how disastrous that can that can turn out. You knew that Dave Gettleman was going to go one way or the other, so he retires before he got fired. Would that have been more beneficial to have get Gettleman to retire earlier? And when I mean earlier, I mean by several weeks. No, I mean. Probably not, because the only people you could have actually interviewed then are, are were guys who were out of work. I mean, you can't contact guys until after their seasons are over. So I mean, you know, they they they, they wouldn't have gotten a real head start. And you have to figure that in the in the, in the you know in their office they knew that Gettleman was gone. So whatever work they did, um, you know, after they made that determination probably two months ago, they wouldn't have been able to do much more in that time since. There's not one guy out there who's currently unemployed, do you say, oh, we want to bring him in? Um, if there were, it would have been different, but there was really nothing to be gained by actually firing him, except that, you know, I know that the fans, you know, want, they want their pound of flesh, so I, I think, I think there, you know, there, there, there was something going to be unsatisfied that he was able to walk away on his own, and whatever, I mean, you know, it's like being a fan means, means, means giving into your visceral reactions a lot, and that's what that's about, I think. Taking a bite of the Big Apple with Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post. The problem the Giants now face is that there are six other coaching vacancies uh, in Las Vegas, in Chicago, Jacksonville, Minnesota, Denver, and Miami. And I bring it up because there are a lot of viable candidates out there. By the time the Giants hire a general manager and in turn uh, look for a head coach, uh, the, a number of the, the what would seem to be the more appealing head coaches may be gone by the time they make that decision. Possibly, but I mean, it's something you have to honor the, the, the process properly. I mean, the GM has to be has to be comfortable with the guy he hires as a coach because they're going to work in lockstep with each other. I mean, if it means that, 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 that they lose out on the coaching candidate, I mean, that's just that's just the way it is. I mean, to me, there are a lot of there are going to be a lot of qualified coaching candidates, and it's going to be on the GM then. Whoever, whoever they hire BGM to, to, to identify the right one. So I mean, to me, I mean, uh, look, I mean, I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's one end-all, be-all guy out there. I mean, it's not like Bill Belichick is a free agent, or Bill Parcells 15 years ago was a free agent. I mean, where you feel like you have to act quickly. I mean, there's a number of qualified candidates. It's a matter of figuring out the right, figuring out who it is. And, and look, it's still the New York Giants. I mean, they've been on hard times, but. That's still, that's still a job that should be appealing to an awful lot of people. Well, since Tom Coughlin left after 12 seasons, Ben McAdoo, two years. Pat Shermer, two years. Joe Judge, two years. Um, look, if there's this kind of problem. Uh, you got to start at the top, right? So, I mean, ownership's got to look at itself in the mirror and saying, we didn't get the job done. And I think that John Mara's done that. John Mara's never been a, the problem with John Mara has never been his accountability. He's always been out front in terms of saying, blame me. I'm the guy. You know, he, he's never blamed fans who boo, specifically those who boo him and specifically those who are particularly vicious. Whenever he makes a public appearance at a halftime ceremony and they just get on him like crazy. 
whether it was from PSLs back in the day or from the performance of the team now. So, I mean, I, you know, J- Joe Mayer is a big boy here. He doesn't he doesn't uh, shy away from any of that, and he's and he's never lacked for accountability. Uh, but you know, he's just he's got he's he's going to be better at his job. You know, I mean, you're the one thing that's irreplaceable in a, in a, in a, in the sports franchise is the ownership. Owners can't get fired. And so, in, 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 in that case, I mean, you know, John Mara just has to be, you know, he, he and Steve Tisch have to figure out who the right guy is. I mean, whoever that is, you know, it, 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 it's got to be the right guy and it's got to be a guy they, they entrust to do uh, whatever needs to be done with their team. Well, you, you look at Daniel Jones and he, he's the, the biggest situation up front. Uh, you say to yourself, you're the general manager. Uh, are you satisfied with Daniel Jones? And then the guy that you hired to be the head coach, is he the right guy to bring Daniel Jones along, provided that you all agree that Daniel Jones is your quarterback? Do you think he is? Unfortunately, I don't think you've gotten a definitive answer by what you've seen from in the last couple of years. Uh, if it were up to me, my answer would be no. But, I mean, you know what? I mean, I'm also not a football whisperer, so... You could easily, you know, if, 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 if you hire the right guy who actually does is enamored with uh, with who Judge with with, with who uh, Daniel Jones is and his skill set. I mean, that's all to be determined. I mean, I mean, look, look, I mean, I don't think he's the quarterback of the future, but I'm not the guy. The guy who's gonna be making that choice. So, I mean, everybody's got to be on the same page with that. That's part of what the process here is. Is making sure everyone is on is on the same page. Yeah, that that, that you know that's that's very true. So. You know, I, I look at some of the candidates, you know, and Josh McDaniel jumps off the page because he's had a lot of success, but he's also been a head coach where he didn't have success. And, and I'm wondering, do you get an offensive-minded head coach? Do you get a defensive-minded head coach? Uh, in, in the Jets' case, as an example, Robert Sala is primarily a defensive-minded coach, but I don't think that's the reason why they hired him. Do you? No, I think they hired him because he, because he was the guy that Joe McDonald was most comfortable working with. And look, that may turn that may that may turn out to work. It may turn out not to be. We're too early in that process to really know if it's working or not. I mean, I think it may. It looks like they made progress this year, and I think the two the two men get along, which you really need to have happen to have a successful operation. So, I mean, to me, I mean, at this point, especially in the Giants' history, at this point, they can't afford to say we're only going with an offensive coach or with a defensive coach. We're only going with a players' coach. We're only going with a disciplinarian. We're going with the, with the, the guy they have to hire. Is the guy the general manager is going to be the most comfortable working with and believes he can get the job done. And it's, uh, you know, it sounds simple, but it really is that simple. And you got to hope that they're right and, know and that they know what they're doing. Do you think uh, that the 11-minute the diatribe that Joe Judge uh, spewed uh, after their last game, that was the final straw? It didn't help him. I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't a good look. Nobody likes it when their coach is burying guys under the bus. I mean... You know, Ron Rivera has accomplished a lot in the NFL, um, more than certainly more than Joe Judge has. Um, you know, I would argue that Pat Shermer has also. You know, last year he didn't have any any problem taking on Peterson from the from, from the Eagles, and you know, all he had done is won a Super Bowl. So, you know, I, I, I thought that was a curious strategy for a guy who really hadn't accomplished very much, and it just seemed desperate. You know, I mean, it just it just really, you know, if you have to tell me what a good coach you are, then I got to wonder if you're really a good coach. And to me, I mean, I think that was, I think that was a really bad look. I think, uh, I think Mara mentioned that yesterday during his during his press conference that, uh, you know, well, that might not have been the the, the, the the reason. It certainly didn't help, and the optics were just horrible. Mike, I got to be honest with you. Beginning of the season, I thought the Giants had a chance to win the NFC East 
I, you know, in retrospect, it sounded like a stupid prediction. But then uh, I was talking to Carl Banks, who does their radio, as a longtime giant favorite and a great linebacker during some of the, the heydays of Lawrence Taylor and Parcells and all the rest of that crowd, Phil Sims. Uh, and I said, is this Daniel Jones make or break year? And he vehemently said no. Uh, and then I talked to Carl about three weeks ago, and I reminded him what he said. And I said, would you make that statement even today? He goes, probably not. And the evidence is, is quite there that no, he hasn't. But is it all on Daniel Jones or is it who was around him uh, and on the injury factor, etc.? It's not just on Daniel Jones, right? No, in the same way, it really is. It wasn't all on Joe Judge either. I mean, there's a there's a limited amount of talent in any way, and whatever talent was there was barely on the field. So those are things that it's hard to to pin on the quarterback, and it was really even hard to pin on the coach. But the fact is that you know when 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 the quarterback has had his opportunity, he looked so much better as a rookie than he did as a second year player, and even as a third year player. I mean, just look at his record. I mean, you know, our friend Parcells, the guy who said you are what your record says you are, and it's hard, to, it's, 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 it's hard to walk away from that. I mean, what you've seen Daniel Jones is a guy who's given you some flashes of brilliance, but he's also shown a, uh, an inability to, to, to protect the ball. I mean, he's been very care, carefree and loose with the ball, fumbling and intercepting. I mean, he's not a guy right now after his body of work that, that jumps out at you and says, this is a guy who's a winning quarterback. Now, under the right coach, in the right system, can that change? I think it can. But, I mean, that's all part of this, the process to come. Taking the bite of the Big Apple with Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post. Nobody can be successful without preparation and without a plan. The Jets, by contrast, uh, when you look at the two franchises up against each other, the Jets clearly uh, have uh, more of a plan or a better plan. Joe Douglas, you got to give him credit for this. You look back on the, on the, recent, the, the most recent draft in 2021, and they come away with two Michael Carters, one offense, one defense. Both have contributed. You look at Elijah Moore. He didn't have a big year, but you saw flashes that when healthy, this kid could be a major contributor to their passing game. So I think you give Joe Douglas credit for a pretty good draft. Now, coming up, you've got four of the top 38 picks in the draft going to the Jets. Two in the first round, number four, number 10. Uh, and the onus is on them. The the onus of the onus is upon them to really deliver, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, look. I mean, I, I think it's look. It's 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 it, it, it's rare that Jets fans can be optimistic. I get it. I mean, having been one myself growing up, I understand that there's a lot of a lot of baggage, a lot of history you have to overcome, and and your first instinct as a Jets fan is to. You know, is, is to wait for the other shoe to drop. I, I think there's optimism here, despite four wins. I really do. I thought they, I thought they showed a lot. I thought the quarterback was playing better at the end of the year than at the beginning of the year. I think the team was playing better at the end of the year, at the beginning of the year. I think, I think they're they're the youngest team in the NFL, and they had young players who contributed. That's a credit to Joe Douglas. I mean, I think. Look, I mean, I think you have to say that Douglas had a pretty had a positive draft last year. And you know what you need to do when you're the Jets now is is stack drafts. I mean, he needs another one. You know, and and probably another one next year after that. But um, so to me, I mean, look, if, I, if I'm a Jets fan, you know, I'm not happy at four and thirteen. I'm not happy with six wins over the last two years. I'm not happy about not being in the playoffs in the last ten years. But if you're going to look at things realistically, I do think they're better off now than they were this time last year. 
And uh, you know, I, I I I don't I don't go into the draft with a lot of trepidation that my GM is going to screw it up because I do think that he had a pretty good draft last year, and I think he'll I think he'll be fine this year. I really do. I've got I've got confidence in the guy. I do. Zach Wilson has shown progress. Uh, did not throw an interception the last five weeks. Almost had a victory over Tampa Bay until uh, I don't know they they went brain dead in terms of play calling, etc. Uh, but they had a legitimate chance to win that game, and bad teams find ways to lose games rather than find ways to win. But you're right. I think there's a reason for optimism. I think they have the right plan. And uh, although I can't believe that Jet fans are going to be too thrilled with the fact that they've raised ticket prices for the first time in five years. Yeah, I mean, uh, I certainly heard from Jets fans who aren't happy with that, and, and I, I don't blame them. not easy being a fan of any team. Howard, you know that. I mean, you know, the... the Fans not, not only ask a lot from fans, they, they teams not only ask a lot from fans, they demand a lot from fans. And, you know, especially in New York, it's, you know, it's going to cost you some, you know, to be able to, 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 to want to do what you enjoy, which is to go watch your team play. It's terrible. I mean, you know, whatever. That's, that, 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 that's not a new story. But um, look, I mean, I, I do think that Jets fans will be willing to, to pay any price and bear any burden if it means that they're actually going to be a, a legitimate team again for the first time in a decade. I uh, think you're heading in that direction. Yeah, and when you talk, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Than, than aiming there, but I do think they're in the right direction. Yeah, uh, when you talk about fans, I don't know if you get more rabid fans than you get at Madison Square Garden for the Knicks. Uh, the Knicks are back at 500 after blowing out Dallas last night by 23, uh, and improved their improved their performance at MSG where they have not played well, but now they won five straight at the Garden. And before we came on. Uh, the Knicks, according to uh, Wojciechowski from uh, ESPN, uh, Adrian Wojciechowski, um, the Atlanta Hawks traded Cam Reddish to the Knicks in exchange for Kevin Knox, and there's draft choices involved as well. I don't know what Atlanta was thinking. Cam Reddish, at 22 years old, at six foot eight, power forward or, or forward, uh, he he has not played a lot of minutes. But I think that's going to change. This guy could step right in and help them immediately. Yeah, I agree. It's great because he really is a terrific trade for the Knicks, I believe. Uh, like I, I think the, the Hawks have a bunch of young guys stacked up to get big deals coming up, and I think they had to prioritize. I think that's probably what happened here. Um, and they're hoping that maybe they can you know, figure out something with Kevin Knox, who's clearly his days with the Knicks were done. Um, for the Knicks, though, I mean, it's, I mean they're, they're, it's, hard, it's, hard to, it's hard to find anything wrong with this. Um, I mean, you got to figure that Reddish playing with his old buddy R.J. Barrett's that that that, that, that that's going to be a that's going to be a good thing for both players and and and, and, you know, and and Barrett is really really stepping up and coming into his own back-to-back 30-point games. Uh, I I, I love Reddish's game in college. There were a lot of people who thought you know you would, you know you're taking a different opinion that Reddish might actually you know be a better pro than than than, than Barrett. I'm not sure that maybe they took that leap with Zion Williamson, but at this point you never know with Zion either. But uh, look, I mean, I think what the Knicks need is to be young and athletic, and they got younger and athletic, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm really very very interested to see what uh, what what, what Cam Reddish does with the Knicks. It's it's a it's a, it's a really exciting trade, I think. Yeah, I think it looks like that. Sound watching the game last night sounds like the the Boo Birds let up on Julius Randle. Uh, you know, in New York, you know this, Mike. In New York, you cannot make enemies of the fans because at the end of the day, they've got the upper hand. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a losing proposition. I mean, it's, it's just, and I, I understand frustration. Certainly, he's the first guy to lose this to, to, 
to, to, to get frustrated and to, and to kind of lose his cool when it comes to that. You still, you still like to see it because, I mean, you know, basically, you know, you're, 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 you're cursing your fans who are paying your salary, which is a bad look. Uh, it's always going to be a bad look, and you're never going to, you're never going to win that battle. Um, but fans are forgiving. Look, I mean, you know, a week after, you know, Javi Baez did the same thing this summer. Uh, you know, City Field was chanting his name because he had a couple good games in a row. I mean, it's a, it's a, it really is that kind of relationship with fans, and I think that. Uh, uh, you, you're right. I mean, I think the, uh, the, the the ice is thawing in that relationship already. I think uh, you know when Julius you know, puts up a game like he put up last year, a, a 30 points, 15 rebounds, 10 assists game, I think I'll be forgiven. Um, look, I mean, I, I, I think I think the problem is that that uh, you know Julius played last year like a, like an alpha dog. He's being paid this year like an alpha dog, and he's not an alpha dog. I mean, I think his his, his his maximum is to be a, a really good complimentary number two or number three player on a really good team. And I think, I think, I think we're seeing more. We saw that in the playoffs last year. And I think that's only been, been highlighted by what we've seen so far this year. Last night, uh, playing the Mavericks, uh, Reggie Bullock was in a Mavericks uniform who was with the Knicks last year. I, I still think the Knicks missed him. Uh, I don't think it was, uh, it, it's anything that I, I think in retrospect, they probably uh, should have, done what they had to do to re-sign him because he's an outstanding two-way player. Uh, and I think this Reddish deal, and maybe this is a reach, Mike, but I think this Reddish deal uh, is in an effort to answer back those that, that, that think that Bullock should still be a Nick. And, you know, the thing is, Bullock, Bullock's been kind of hot and cold with the Mavericks this year, too. And, and you know, he was a very good defensive player. So in that sense, he was a perfect player for Tom Thibodeau's system. Kemba's not so much a defensive player, which is the reason why there's been a a real conflict there. I mean, I think Evan Fournier has really started to take leaps and bounds. He's gotten more comfortable with the Knicks, but he's also not what you would call a defensive first player. So I think that's what you miss most of all with Bullock. But uh, look, if Fournier is going to play on offense the way he's played the last week, uh, you'll be able to live with it. And I think, look, I mean, you, you know, the, the, the Knicks are now giving more, you know, more time to the, uh, to the younger guards on their roster. I'm not sure what that's going to mean for Kemba when he comes back. Uh, we'll see what that means. And now with Reddish coming in, I do think you're going to have a different look. Uh, certainly younger, more athletic, and I think more defensive-minded. It's going to be a lot more fun, I think, to watch this team the last uh, the last you know, 39 games of the season than it's been so far. Meanwhile, across the river, the Brooklyn Nets go into Chicago last night. Number one team in the East has been on a tear. And they not only beat them, and they take them apart. Kyrie Irving plays. Harden had a monster game. Uh, Durant had his usual Durant game and there's now rumblings people are talking about well maybe the, the Nets can play uh, Kyrie Irving and pay a fine I don't think that's going to happen I don't think net ownership is going to do that because uh, you know they want him as a full-time player but not under those circumstances right I wouldn't think so uh, you know it, it, it's it, it's uh, it's uh, they have a lot of answering to do for things they've said in the past already about their 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 ever-changing goalposts on this subject so i think that right now they'll they'll see where they are for the time being i mean i guess all bets are off if we get to the playoffs and that option is still available for them but um we, you know we'll see but uh, yeah i mean I, that, that, that look that was an impressive showing by the nets and really necessary because they've really struggled against the, the best teams in the, in the in the league so far this year and that was really a statement game bulls weren't you know weren't completely healthy but uh, but uh, you know neither were the nets so uh to me i mean look i mean you know that's a it's a definitely a positive step forward for the Nets, and and just shows you just how just just what they're capable of when all cylinders are firing. And we already knew that 
but to see it is kind of different. Well, they got the best road record in the NBA right now, just added to it. Do you think, deep down, that they that the Nets can win a championship with this configuration, with Kyrie playing just on the road? They can. I mean, it's going to make it harder on themselves because especially if they get home court advantage, they wouldn't have him for a game seven, which is going to be kind of a unique situation. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but, but sure, even without Kyrie, I mean, look, I mean, you know, Harden and Durant's pretty good one-two punch. They could beat you know, pretty much everybody. I don't know if they're as good as the Bucks or as good as the Bulls you know, without, without, without all of their pieces in place, but they certainly could beat them. And uh, you, know, you give a team a, fight, a puncher's chance, that's really all you need, especially in the playoffs. I think this is a really good basketball team. And look, the East, as you well know, top to bottom is as tight as it's been in recent memory. And I think, uh, I think it's a deeper conference right now than the West. Would you agree or no? For sure. All I got to do is look at the records, look at the teams, the quality of the teams. It definitely is. I mean, you know, the Knicks are, are at 500, and there, there are some years in the East when that would be good enough for the fourth or fifth best record. And right now they're tied for the uh, for the last playing spot. So um, it's, I, think it's, I think that's definitely the case. I think, I think the league is definitely a little bit upside down from what we've been used to the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, before I let you go, Mike, uh, in getting away from, uh, from basketball and football, uh, Keith Hernandez is having his number 17 jersey uh, retired by the Mets sometime this summer. And now there's a groundswell of support to try to get Keith Hernandez into the Hall of Fame. You look at his numbers and you see a lifetime batting average of 296, uh, 2,100 hits. He was never a big home run hitter, but had his share. And one of the great fielding first basemen in recent history, or maybe of all time, with 11 gold gloves, and he's also won an MVP. Is he a Hall of Famer in your mind? Well, look, I mean, I, you know, I, I had the opportunity to get – I got my ballot for the first time, uh, Henry Hernandez and Mattingly's last few years in the ballot. I voted for both of them every every year. Maybe that's a maybe that's a consideration of having growing up in New York and watching both those players every day. To me, I think, look, I mean, are they first ballot Hall of Famers? By, by, by no stretch. Are they Hall of Famers by what we now know the definition to be? I mean, if Harold Baines is a Hall of Famer and if Ted Simmons is a Hall of Famer, Bill Mazeroski is a Hall of Famer. You're going to tell me Keith Hernandez and Don Mattingly weren't Hall of Famers? Uh, to me, I mean, look, I mean, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to set a precedent and let those guys in, I think you're going to open the doors a little wider to a bunch of other players. And to me, I mean, those are two guys who definitely merit consideration. It was definitely long overdue for Hernandez to be honored by his own team, though. Uh, he was gracious with it. I mean, it meant a lot to him, and he said all the right things yesterday, but I know in his heart of hearts. He had to have thought the way a lot of Mets fans thought, you know, why didn't this happen 15 years ago? Um, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's good to see the Mets, and, you know, in fairness, I mean, it was under the Wolfons that this, the Hall of Fame committee decided to, to retire that number. I mean, they didn't inform Keith until long after the vote happened, but um, it's, it's good for the Mets to finally start embracing their history because it is a history worth, worth embracing and a history worth, worth, worth remembering. You, you mentioned Bill Mazeroski. To, to me, he's in the Hall of Fame because hitting the game-winning home run of the 1960 World Series. So he, when he got elected, it was a burr in my saddle because of something. Why didn't Gil Hodges get in then? That that was absurd. And now finally, Gil Hodges gets into the Hall of Fame. Uh, I as an as you know, I was a little boy growing up in Brooklyn, and the Dodgers were my life. And I'm delighted because I have spoken to Joan Hodges uh, some years ago, and now here she is at 95, I think. Finally, uh, get, her husband goes into the Hall of Fame. I think this is tremendous that Hodges is finally in because I don't think anybody in the history of the game 
as exemplified class better than Gil Hodges did, both as a player and as a manager. And if there's one that, that, that did, it was probably Buck O'Neill, and he's going to get in, and they're going to go in together, which is going to be just a wonderful uh, you know, twofer. I mean, other, other guys are getting in also, but to me, I mean, those are the two those are the two absences from the Hall of Fame that bothered me the most over, over the course of time. And to me, the fact that they're both going in together, a uh, wonderful thing. Well, Bate, the NFL playoffs are going to start this weekend. You got a horse in the race? Uh, I've, I've always been fond of the Chiefs since I was a little boy, so I'm, I, I always read that way. But uh, we'll see. I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be fun. I think, it's, I think the Chiefs have as good a chance as anybody because I don't think there's really one standout team. No, there's really not. It's, it, it, and I think that's going to make the playoffs that much more interesting. And I'm really interested to see what happens with the new format with only you know, two teams getting by this year. And, you know, if that plays into anything at all, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be fun. A lot, of, a lot of football games this weekend. Nothing wrong with that. No, I, I, you know, it's, I, <laughs> when I saw the schedule, I said, the NFL's got a weird sense of humor. You schedule in New England at Buffalo at night, and it's going to be like it's going to be like zero. <laughs> yep, and Tampa, and then Tampa, one o'clock in the afternoon. So <laughs> go, go, go figure, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, I wouldn't be. I like to see a good, a good ice bowl game now and then. So as long as we have to sit in it, that's all that matters. You know, I, I I don't know what what the odds are in the two number one seeds meeting in the Super Bowl, but I think it's a chance. Uh, and particularly with with Tennessee, I think Mike Vrabel's coach of the year, what he's done since Derrick Henry went out and kept that team afloat like he has. Uh, and, of course, all eyes are on Green Bay and Aaron Rodgers. Uh, is this Aaron Rodgers' last season in Green Bay? I would hope not because he's so aligned with that franchise. But supposedly they have mended fences between he and the general manager. Seems that way, and I think that's a really good thing. So I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I, think Aaron, I, think, I think Aaron Rodgers deserves to be one of those guys who, who's associated only with one with one team. I mean, you know, I saw, you know, I don't think of Brett Favre as a Jet or as a Viking, frankly, but um, I, I would really like to see that myself. Well, you know, it's uh, it, there's a franchise. I always, anytime I went, I did a game at Lambeau Field. I always refer to it as the Yankee Stadium of the NFL, because of the tradition, the history. And when you do a game there, you look across and you see Lombardi and Horning and Star and and then I mean, it's it's astounding the kind of history that franchise has. It really is, and you know Rogers has as much a part of it as anybody in it. But I mean, there is something you know, forgetting all the other stuff off the field. I mean, there would be something poetic about him winning another championship because that's a career worthy of more than one championship, I think. Mike, appreciate your insight as always. You stay safe. Thanks. Sounds good. Thanks, Howard. Good talking to you. He's Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post, taking a bite of the Big Apple with yours truly, Howard David. I think Mike's a great writer. Uh, I forgot to ask him one question. I talked about planning and preparation. What about if you're a, a columnist or a writer? There's a lot of preparation and planning that goes into what you write, right? Right, right? I mean, there is. I, I, um, I don't know, I'm fascinated. I'm, it's one of the things that, that I think that, because I love to write. Uh, I don't know, I'm trying to put together uh, a memory bank of uh, some things that... Um, that I've, I've experienced in broadcasting and in the middle of, um, of putting together notes to write a book, hopefully, it's not a question of coming up with, with stuff. It's a question of, um, you know, you got to make it entertaining. And we're going to try to do that, but we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm going to check in with the guy that's going to give me a little insight. 
Hello, Daryl. It's Howard. David, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. It's, um, it's a busy day. Um, uh, your, your computer must be going wild. I've always wondered, uh, having traveled around the league in broadcasting, but have made a lot of friends uh, in, the, uh, in the written uh, aspect of, broadcast, of media, particularly guys that, that are uh, beat writers for teams, you got to come up with something fresh and new every time and every day. And you sit down at your computer and you start. I mean, you got a thought in mind, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's certainly no shortage of stuff to write about. I mean, it's been a crazy busy week. So a lot of angles to examine, that's for sure. Well, and the biggest angle, obviously, in, in your case, is covering the Giants. And it, it reminded me of, um, and I love, I love uh, references to movies. There's a scene in The Godfather, you remember, where the, where the members of the five families are all together, and Don Corleone says, how did things get so far? As I relate to the Giants, I'm wondering, how did things get so bad uh, so fast? Yeah, it's a good analogy, yeah. Um, right, I mean, like a, just a string of bad decisions. You, know, you start with... You know, going all the way back to they held on to Eli Manning too long, held on to Tom Coughlin too long, uh, Jerry Reese too long. And uh, but really, I mean, those those things could have been corrected if they just brought in, uh, you know, a capable GM to replace Jerry Reese. They, they didn't do that. You know, Dave Gettleman was a failure. Um, they could have been corrected if, you know, they had maybe cast a wider net in looking for Tom Coughlin's replacement. They didn't do that. They, they were worried about Ben McAdoo uh, getting the job in, in Philly. And, um, you know, obviously Ben McAdoo didn't turn out to be a very good coach. And then, you know, really they, they hired a retread coach and Pat Shermer, a proven loser. Um, and then with Joe Judge, they took a chance on a guy who nobody else was really interested in. So, Four just absolutely atrocious hires here by John Mara has put them in a situation where, yeah, I mean, the, they've, they've been a losing team essentially for a decade. They had a one playoff, one and done run there, but uh, 61 and 110 seasons since their last Super Bowl title. So, um, you know, the early part of that was probably the result, certainly the result of hanging on to those three guys I mentioned too long. But they, they could have dug out of it if they made better hires. They, they just didn't. Last five years, 22-59, and 59, tied for worst in the NFL with, yes, indeed, the New York Jets. Same identical record over the last five years. Uh, you mentioned Tom Coughlin. He was there for 12 years, and then the, 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 the hires after that, McAdoo, Shermer, and now Judge. Do you think that Judge's diatribe after the last game, the, 11, the alleged 11-minute diatribe, which reminded me of all the, uh, the the tapes that were missing in the Nixon Watergate investigation. <laughs> yeah, but, but that aside, uh, do you think that that was the final blow? Well, I mean, just the, you know, hearing John Maris talk about it, he said there was no kind of last straw. But like, here, here's the bottom line: John Maris was speaking glowingly publicly about Joe Judge in late October, um, and the you know the Giants at that point um, were trending toward obviously keeping him. So then it becomes what, what changes besides the losing. And that, it wasn't just the losing. It was, you know, a combination of everything. I mean, Joe Judge's message began to fall flat in his locker room. And, and you know, look, a lot of that is because of losing. And, and, and they were losing because they have bad players. I mean, let's be honest here. You had a locker room of, of players who are not very good. And, you know, 
and some of those guys are upset about losing. Well, they're, they're losing because the players are not very good. I mean, part of it is, is Joe Judge and his inability to craft a coherent offensive plan. Remember, he's a special teams guy. He leaned on Jason Garrett, uh, who was not a good offensive coordinator. Um, so it, it all kind of added up. Yes, John Merrow was upset by Joe Judge's cheap shots in that 11-minute uh press conference spiel you know look the, the great irony here is that this is a this is a bill belichick disciple who kind of talked his way out of a job which is amazing considering like did, did he learn nothing from belichick um you know the question that, that elicited that response was very innocuous it would be why should the fans trust you to be the guy to lead this team forward and and certainly the first part of it was normal he said you know look they they, sh- they have every right to be upset because we're not producing and then he went on to take shots at Pat Shermer, at Ron Rivera, which was, you know, just really dumb, like, to, honestly. So um, there was that. There was the, the third and seven, the third and ninth seat call uh, in the finale against Washington, which John Mara didn't like. But he, he said that that was minor. I think the press conference was a major turnoff for John Mara because he is very image conscious. And he likes this perception, at least, that the Giants are a classy organization who do things the right way. Um, and... You know, taking shots at, you know, look, Pat Shermer was a failure, but I think, what do you gain by, by knocking the guy? You know, everyone knows the Giants were bad when Joe Judge took over. Everyone knows they had bad apples like, you know, Golden Tate in that locker room. But, you know, you don't really gain much by by doing that if you're Joe Judge. So I think that was that was an immature uh, move by him. He, he's a guy who's wound very tight and be very emotional. And I think you saw it there. He, he slipped up and made a mistake. And uh, on top of everything else, including, you know, his, his, his sense of authority being lessened in the locker room, um, he, he, was, uh, he was sent packing. And I think really a lot of it, too, was they knew that their GM job was not going to be very attractive as they try to rebuild this roster if they had, uh, you know, a hot seat head coach who, let's be honest, most GMs are probably not lining up to work for him work with him. Uh, talking with Daryl Slater of the uh, Newark Star-Ledger, uh, taking a bite of the Big Apple with Daryl. I, I, I think about what you said about Judge taking shots at Shermer and so on. There's a, there are a lot of people that I've crossed in my life that think that they elevate their own status by putting down others. And, and I think Judge might be one of those people. But that aside, it's got, the, the order is we have to hire a general manager first and then the head coach. Well, there are six head coaching jobs other than the Giants that are available. And you wonder, because there are some, there are several viable candidates. I don't know if there's one that stands out, but it's going to take time for this process, uh, first for general manager and then the general manager to make the decision on the coach. Do you think they'd be missing out on somebody maybe that they would have a better shot at had they had a general manager in place? Well, I mean, I wrote that at the end of the season. I, I said, here's the problem with waiting to fire Joe Judge. So they, they didn't wait, really wait to fire him. They waited like an extra couple, extra day. So they, they did the right thing timing-wise. Um, now, they are not running a concurrent search. Like the Bears are running searches at the same time. The Vikings and the Giants are not. They're going to hire a GM who then will hire the coach. So I think, I think that's the right approach. Um, obviously, you couldn't keep Dave Gettleman. There was no way you could keep him. So you're going to be looking for a GM anyway. But I think th- th- that's the right approach because otherwise you wind up – if you're running concurrent searches, you run the risk of having an arranged marriage like John Idzik and Rex Ryan, and that was a failure. So I think that that's the right way to do it. Let the GM hire the coach. Like John Mara should not be hiring the coach. 
coach. The GM should be hiring a coach who he trusts. Now, you have to, if you're putting that much power in your GM's hands, you better darn well make sure you hire a competent GM. And, and let's see if John Mara can do that. So, yes, they are a little bit behind. I mean, you look at the Raiders. The Raiders are obviously in the playoffs. They're not doing a coaching search, and they might keep their interim coach. So um, you look at the other teams that need a coach. Like I said, the Vikings are going to wait. Like the Giants are going to wait. The Bears are running their search. The Jaguars are running their search. Um, and I'm, I'm leaving somebody out. but um, Miami. Miami, yes, thank you. So the Jaguars, the Broncos too, the Jaguars, Broncos, Dolphins, Bears are all actively running searches. So those are four teams right there that are getting ahead of the curve here. So the Giants need to get this – I, look, will they? I, I think it all depends on like the fit, right? So like, there's not not all those coaching candidates out there are going to want to work for whoever the, the Giants hire as a GM, and that's fine because um, look, you, you want a coach who wants to work with the GM. So uh, you hire the GM first. You find the six, seven guys instead of sixteen, seventeen guys that narrow the pool to the guys the GM wants, and then you go from there. Um, again, it, but you better make sure that the GM is is a good enough GM to make the right call and to attract the right coach. Um, but, yes, doing it the way the Giants are doing narrows the pool. But I don't think narrowing the pool is necessarily a, a, a bad thing um, because it's all about finding the right match and the right fit. And the bottom line is this team, um, you know, I don't care who the coach is in 2022. They're not going to be good. And I honestly don't care who the GM is. They're not going to be good in 2022. But they need better talent, and that falls on the GM. So I, I think who they hire as the coach is a less important thing than, than who they hire as the GM because this is a roster-salvaging situation. It's not a situation like the Broncos or the Vikings where they have some talent on the roster and they get a right coach in there and get the thing across the finish line. No, the Giants are, are still a disaster roster-wise. Uh, Darrell, let's talk about the... The, the, the fierce loyalty the Maras have had for as long as I can remember. I mean, I'll go back to uh, well, late 70s. Uh, there was this internal fighting going on between the brothers and the giant hierarchy. And it got to a point where Pete Rozelle brokered a deal to bring in George Young from Baltimore to be the Giants general manager. They went out, they went out of the giant a family to hire a guy, and George Young was there for a long time and did a hell of a job. Uh, but now, the Giants, who have always promoted from within, you would expect that they would but see what's going on and then go out and get somebody from outside the Giant organization and then you know, maybe change the culture and the direction of where they're going. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's what they're doing. I mean, they put it out there publicly that Kevin Abrams is not a candidate. And, like, unfortunately for Kevin Abrams, Kevin Abrams, you know, his shot at ever becoming a GM anywhere was ruined by the fact that he wound up working for Dave Gettleman. You know, they probably should have given him the job in late 2017 when they hired Gettleman. Um, but, uh, but they didn't. And we'll see if Kevin Abrams stays on as assistant GM or in any capacity. But he's been with the Giants since, like, 99, been their assistant GM since 02. Um, and, yeah. It was sort of going to be his turn, you would have thought, but like just because of this perception slash re- really reality that the Giants have been so inward looking, um, with with success earlier on with Ernie Acorsi and the early part of Jerry Reese, but then you know with the, the Dave Gettleman search was such a disaster. I mean, they they interviewed Mark Ross and Kevin Abrams internally. They interviewed one true outside candidate, Lewis Riddick, 
and they interviewed Dave Gettleman, who was really part of their family, even though he had come from the Panthers and had just been fired. So, I mean, that's no way to do a search. And John Mara realizes that now, and now he's got nine uh, uh, targets. They're all outside guys, obviously. He's not going to... He's not going to look internally at all uh, for a candidate, and you know that's that's the right approach. I mean, look, I, I mean, give Kevin Abrams the token interview. I don't see the harm in it, but they're not going to do that, and they're going to hire an outside GM. They haven't done it since George Young in '79, um, and like you know, like I said, I mean, after George Young, you got Ernie Corsi and then Jerry Reese and Gettleman, and so it's not like they've had a ton of GMs since George Young. But um, but yeah, he was a guy who came obviously. Uh, over and was able to, to reinvigorate the Giants after like the b- brutal decade in the 70s. Um, and I, yeah, I think people forget, like they, I, I, my math might be wrong, but I think they made the playoffs in 63, which is like, you know, the playoffs weren't then what they are now, uh, fewer teams obviously. But they didn't make it again until 81. So like he, when he broke their playoff drought, it was a really long playoff drought. It wasn't just like, you know, five years like they're looking at now. I mean, this franchise had wandered in the, in the desert for a while. And so that's why he's so revered. And, um, you know, it would be unfair to the new guy to compare him to George Young or expect that he'd do that. But um, but I think, you know, you got to look outside fresh in your approach, and that's what they're doing. I think that's it's the right approach. Like, it's the right way to do things. And, yes, having your GM hire the coach is the right way to do things. But, again, like, that means you got to hire a really good GM. And let's see if John Mayer is able to do it because it's still his call. Yep. Who the GM is. Uh, there's uh, the, of all the firings, coach-wise, the most stunning was Brian Flores in Miami. Uh, he's had a winning record over two years. They won ten games last year. Had I think seven game winning streak. This year they missed the playoffs. And the report from Miami is that he had relationship issues. Uh, I mean that word spreads around very fast around the league. His chances of getting another job might be hurt by that. But I thought the guy was a hell of a coach. Yeah, um, he is a hell of a coach, and I don't think I, I don't think it will be her back. I mean, he had relationship issues with like one guy and Chris Greer, and yes, I read some of the stuff that's come out about you know, but some of these coaches, you know, Bill Parcells was kind of a jerk too, but he won, right? So like, uh, you know, maybe not jerk, but tough to work with, right? So like, there you can be tough to work with and tough to work for, a little bit of a difficult person. I mean, geez, Tom Coughlin was a very difficult person. Um, uh, and so, yes, I, I think that, you know, Brian Flores certainly comes from that Belichick tree, that my way or the highway situation. He had a, you know, a falling out with Chris Greer and they picked Chris Greer. I mean, like there's a couple things there. Like Stephen Ross, who doesn't even live in Miami, he's a disconnected owner. Um, like to me, if you're picking Chris Greer or Brian Flores, it's a no brainer. You pick Brian Flores. Um, but uh, obviously he didn't. Um, and, you know, it, it was interesting, you know, Mike Florio from PFT had an interesting post about this, talking about how when there's a power struggle for the GM and the head coach, and the owner is not around every day, like Stephen Ross isn't. Um, you know, the owner shows up for the game and he's around the GM, but the coach is in the field coaching. Right? So who has his ear during that time? It's the GM, you know. And so if that guy's trying to win a power struggle, he's got a little bit of a leg up there. So I, I honestly think Brian Flores would be a really good hire for you know a team like Chicago. Um, now I don't, I don't. Could he be in a vacuum a good hire for the Giants? Uh, sure, I think so. Um, but I don't know if it's going to be the right fit with the GM. Um, and I don't know if the Giants want to go in the Belichick guy direction again. He's a defensive-minded coach. Maybe they want to go offensive-minded considering all their offensive issues. So, like, you, these guys all have egos. These GMs and coaches, you just have to make sure you fit the right egos together. Uh, uh, back in the early part of the year, 
I asked uh, a bunch of guys that I knew, uh, who do you think's got the brighter future, the Jets or the Giants? And everybody snapped to attention, said the Giants. And I'll be honest with you, Daryl, I thought the Giants were going to win the NFC East, but then again, what do I know? Uh, I also asked Carl Banks, I said, is this a make or break year for Daniel Jones? He said, absolutely not. I, I think if I asked Carl that today, I might get a different answer. But here you have a franchise in the Giants, and, and, and John Mara, to his credit, has taken responsibility. When this failure has been going on for so long, then the guy at the top, the owner, deserves the blame, and rightfully so, John Mara has accepted accountability, and I applaud him for that. Yeah, no, I mean, like, exactly right. I mean, I wrote that the other day. I mean, this, these failures, like, look, say what you will about Joe Judge. He wasn't ready to be an NFL coach, so maybe don't blame him as much as you blame the guy who thought he was ready to be an NFL coach. Like, Joe, what, is, what are you going to do if you're Joe Judge? Turn down the job and say you're not ready? You know, he didn't force John Mayer to hire him. I mean, he got offered $25 million fully guaranteed. Is anyone going to turn that down? Like, if someone says, you go coach the, coach the Giants, go ahead and do it. You think you're ahead. I'm not ready to do this, but it's $25 million bucks. Of course I'm going to do it. Um, so, yeah, it, it falls on John Mara. And, yeah, John Mara has accepted responsibility. You know, if there's anything he's gotten good at over the recent years, it's, it's ripping himself for failing. And I think Giants fans like that to an extent, but they would prefer that he not have to do that. I think they would prefer, okay, fine, it's great. You know, we understand that you understand that you failed. Maybe stop failing. Like I think that that's, that's where they're at right now with 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 their trust in John Merritt. They don't have any, and he said he hasn't earned it. Okay, fine. Like we've established all that. Now let's now go out and do something competent. Um, so yes, I, I, your point about uh, the Giants being in better shape, of course. Like before the year, you look at like Kenny Galladay and all the pieces they brought back on their defense, Blake Martinez, and they made win now moves in free agency and uh you know the Galladay move really fell flat and daniel jones never took the next step and as it turned out their line wasn't even close to being ready uh especially once it got dinged by injuries to help him out so like now they're back to kind of almost square one um unless they can get these existing players on their roster to somehow take a big leap uh next year and yeah i think the jets i think i mentioned this here before the jets are in better shape i think just because they have more cap space um yeah the jury's still out on zach wilson right so like the jury's out on jones too um the giants don't have the real flexibility like if they go out and get russell wilson they're gonna have to mess around with their cap they're gonna have to be able to they're not gonna be able to do anything else so they're not gonna be able to repair that line in front of them they'll have to address that in the draft okay you got a first round pick starting in front of them at right tackle or guard but, you know the kid's a rookie on the line so it's not going to be a perfect situation for either of these teams obviously but the jets if they make the right moves in the draft and free agency this year, I think they've got a, a good path toward being better than the Giants next year. Uh, both teams have two first-round picks. Uh, the Jets have four of the top 38 picks in the draft. They also have $60 million in cap space. And give Joe Douglas credit. I think if you look back on his draft of 2021, you'd give him a B-plus at least for what he got. Two Mi Michael Carters, one on each side of the ball. Uh, obviously, Zach Wilson and uh, and Elijah Moore. We haven't seen the real Elijah Moore yet, but I think this kid's got a chance to be something special. Yeah, I think that the, the Jets draft certainly uh, in the, in the second draft here for Joe Douglas in twenty twenty one a lot better than the first. You know, you mentioned all the guys that he got there, and uh, you know, you compare that to you know his first draft, not quite as effective. I mean, Mackay Beckton does not look like 
a particularly great player right now. And um, Denzel Mims in the second round, and then Ashton Davis, Jabari Zuniga. Those are their first four or first four picks, all in the first three rounds. And you know, Michael P. Ryan. Like so, they, they didn't get anybody in that first draft except for Bryce Hall in the fifth round, who's a you know a solid corner. So the first draft was a mess. I think, it, and you could already say that about it. It, it was a mess. Uh, it is a mess. So, but the next one, you know, obviously Vera Tucker. Who you, we didn't even mention him. The 14th overall pick looks like a really foundational player at guard. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of their first four picks. I mean, Wilson and T- Vera Tucker in the first round, more in the second than Michael Carter in the fourth, who looks like a steal there. Which is where you should draft a running back, third or fourth round, right? So, um, and then the other Michael Carter in the fifth. So yeah, they, they, he's he's rebounded a little bit. I wouldn't expect him to go crazy in free agency just because he kind of takes a more modest approach in free agency. And, and you know, I think that the probably airs on the side of caution given given the fact that you know these big free agency signings have tended to not work out, especially for the Jets recently, Le'Veon Bell. Um, so. Yeah, I think that you know this is a huge year for Joe Douglas. Huge. I mean, this team needs to show progress in 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 2022, and it all it really gets back to Zach Wilson. He's shown potential, but like, it's not a stretch to say that he needs to be a lot better uh, in his second year and, and help kind of elevate this team. I would agree. Uh, then again, look at the last five games: no interceptions. That's that's a positive. Uh, they should have beaten Tampa Bay. Uh, I don't lay it on Zach Wilson. I lay it on the, I mean, everybody's complicit uh, in a ridiculous call that they made uh, on the quarterback sneak on fourth and two. But that that was a game they went nose-to-nose with Tampa Bay, and good teams win those games. Bad teams find ways to lose those games. Okay, so and we've seen the Tom Brady movie over and over and over again. You give him a little crack, he's going to bury you. And he did, but he had an opportunity. I would say about the Jets, and, and if I was to look at – and I think he's probably going to be gone by the time the Jets draft at four. And that's the Hutchinson kid from Michigan, uh, an outstanding edge rusher. I have to believe he's going to be gone before four. Oh, no doubt about it. I, 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 there's no question he's going to be gone before four. Um, but the Jets certainly have the ability to be a lot better um, to improve their roster, I should say, in the draft this year. If you look at this website, tankathon.com, they do draft capital power rankings really based on the old um, – I presume it's based on the draft value chart, the Jimmy Johnson. It is based on the Jimmy Johnson draft value chart. The Jets are number one and the Giants are number two. So they both have a lot of capital uh, to get better. Um, and like you mentioned, the high picks that the Jets have, four and ten in the first round. And so I think you know you probably go – uh, probably go edge rusher or cornerback with that fourth pick. I mean, Derek Stingley is the cornerback from from uh, LSU. I, you know, edge rusher wise, Hutchinson's probably not going to be there. So who do you what do you think about the uh, and and that that Thibodeau kid from Oregon may not be there either because you're looking at uh, Jacksonville, Detroit, and Houston. Well, Houston could pick a quarterback, but is there a quarterback worth a pick at three? No. But Detroit probably not, and Jacksonville definitely not picking a quarterback. So Hutchinson probably goes one to the Jaguars, I would think. So, yeah, I mean, I, the Jets have a lot of holes, especially in their defense. Their defense is a mess. Um, and, uh, well, you know, we'll see what Joe Douglas does. But, I mean, he has a college scouting background, and, and here's a, a draft in front of him that, that GMs will be salivating over. Like you said, two firsts, two seconds, and a third, five picks in the top 69, and, and four in the top 38, including four and ten in the first round. Like, a lot to like there. Taking a bite of the Big Apple with Daryl Slater of the Newark Star-Ledger. You're right about Joe Douglas. He has never been uh, a guy that – and you want him in charge of your purse strings because he's very frugal. He is, yeah. I mean, you look at um, – and now this is – 
this is the second straight year where they've had a, they had a lot of cap space, um, and they did make uh, a, a couple big moves last year. They made two big swings, uh, but not like enormous swings. If you think about, it. like, if you compare it to what Kenny Galladay got from the Giants, getting Kenny Galladay is getting about fifty-four million dollars over the first three years of his contract, and uh, the Giants are locked into that fifty-four over the first three, and. You know, the Carl Lawson contract that the Jets gave him last year, I mean, I think he would have been a great player this year for them if he hadn't gotten hurt. They gave him $30 million guaranteed up front, which obviously sounds like a lot, but when you compare it to giving uh, Kenny Galladay the type of money that he got, I mean, gracious. I mean, they they put in flexibility in this, especially if you look at the Lawson contract. They didn't easily get out of it after 2022. Now they will have paid the guy $30 million for one season because he got hurt. The Corey Davis contract, yeah, he, he did not have a good year in his first year with the Jets, but but again, you committed. They committed twenty-seven million dollars to him again over the first two years of a deal. There was no, there's no, there's not a lot of guaranteed money that pushes into that third year. So you're connected to the guy for two years rather than three, and you're paying him. You know, in the case of uh, Davis, twenty-seven, and you're paying uh, Lawson thirty over those that stretch instead of fifty-four for Kenny Galladay. I mean. Kenny Galladay is not twice as good as Corey Davis. Now, maybe neither of them is a true number one receiver. Um, so, yes, I think those are both examples of good contracts by Joe Douglas. In, you know, let's remember, it was only a second uh, free agency cycle. He didn't have a lot of money to spend in 2020 because the Jets went crazy in 2019. CJ Mosley and Le'Veon Bell, who, you know, a horrible contract in Bell and a not very good one for Mosley, even though he was better this past year. Uh, so the Joe Douglas didn't arrive until after that. Everyone, you know, remembers what they did. Let Mike McCagney do free agency. So really, this past year in 21 was his first year to really spend because he didn't get he didn't have much cap space in 20, and he didn't he didn't blow it all. He really didn't. I mean, I think he was he used it well and put themselves put them in a position where right now they're fifth in the league in cap space with 54 million dollars. Fans are going to want him to go out and spend a bunch of that. Um, but I think if you're the Jets, you got to address you got to address it by volume. They have so many roster holes. They need to they need to address this by volume. Um, whether it's guard, whether it's the secondary, um, whether it's trying to bolster uh, their edge rusher situation, um, you got to go get multiple pieces. You can't just go get you know two guys and spend and spend all that on two guys. They they have a lot of holes and um, take a bunch of swings. Take a bunch of mid level swings. I think is the approach. I went to um, my cardiologist last night uh, just for a, new, a normal routine checkup, and he's an avid Jets fan. I walk in the office, first thing out of his mouth, can you believe that they're raising my ticket price? <laughs> I said, Doc, slow down, will you? You know, you haven't had a ticket ri- a raise in five years, you know. Shoot the lock off your wallet, you're making a lot of money. So, <laughs> yeah, right. so, yeah, ask him how much the insurance company was paying him for your visit, right? <laughs> So we got into this discussion, and, and, you know, that leads to the question. Here's Jet fans are being given a pay, an increase on their tickets, and they're saying, hey, you're charging me more money. Spend some of that money, will you? Yeah, sure. I think that's that's part of it. I mean, like they, 2016, I think, is the last time they raised ticket prices. That was coming off of 2015 when they almost made the playoffs, went 10-6. And, and they only went up 3% here. Uh, this year, um, with the, with the increase, and I think I think ultimately Jet fans are saying win games, right? So they, they're okay if Joe Douglas doesn't go and spend because like everyone was screaming and yelling for them to go get Le'Veon Bell in 2019. Mike McCagnan did it, and everyone was excited, and they thought it was going to be a difference maker. But you know, people 
ultimately people around the league looked at that and said, man, the Jets are bidding against themselves and look at how much money they spent on a guy who wound up being terrible. Like, and, and who isn't, you know, who dropped off so quickly, um, you know, after sitting out that year at Pittsburgh and never was the same again. Um, and is not a, not a good player now. So, yeah, I think the, the Jets fans who were really paying attention, uh, you know, I, I think you get excited about the guy making smart moves in free agency more so than big moves and big sexy moves. Because I think people who have been watching this for a while understand that, like, those type of moves don't always pay off. Um, and so you have a quarterback on his rookie contract, which is relatively affordable. So build around him with some volume. I mean, they have a – the problem is their left tackle pick has not worked out. Yes. You figure, like, he's going to be a foundational player to build around your quarterback. Um, you know, well, first it was going to be build around Sam Darnold, but now build around Zach Wilson it hasn't really worked out. But that doesn't mean, you know, that you can't win. Uh, so just win, right? I think Jeff fans are fine paying more as long as they see wins, regardless of what the cap numbers are and the salaries of the players in the field. Like, just win. Before I let you go, give me one team still in the playoffs that nobody wants to play. One team still in the pl- I mean, I guess I could – maybe I shouldn't pick an obvious one. I mean, because, you know, like the Bucks would be pretty obvious. But, uh, you know, because they have Brady. But, you know, I, I, won't, I won't do that. Let me, let me see uh, here. You know, look, I think you probably go Cincinnati. Like, uh, look, I'm just – that's picking the non-obvious team. Um, every, it's easy to pick Rodgers or Brady or uh, – but I think if you look at the AFC – Cincinnati gets to play uh, a Vegas team at home that is uh, that is tired and exhausted after having to scrap and fight to make the playoffs against the Chargers, right? So then you probably the Bengals probably move on to go to Kansas City, uh, which has shown flaws at times. And here's something interesting: Pro Football Focus does a great job, and they do these metrics. The number one, the number two rated quarterback in the NFL in Pro Football Focus's grades this year was Tom Brady. The number one was Joe Burrow. Huh. So he has had an incredible year statistically. Like, and, But even like for a site like that that looks at the analytics of it all, like Joe Burrow had an awesome year. Um, and could Joe Burrow go into Kansas City and outgun, um, outgun uh, Patrick Mahomes? Sure. But then you look at the other side of the bracket, it's Tennessee, New England, and Buffalo. I, I think people look at the Titans and say, man, one seed, really? Like it's weird to even think of them like that. And um, certainly New England and Buffalo has shown flaws at times. So I'm, I'm looking at the Bengals. I know they haven't won a playoff game since I was like nine years old, yeah. <laughs> 30 years now. So uh, that's a good sentimental, but I think also pragmatic pick just because of their first round matchup and because they have a quarterback who I don't think everybody realizes how good this kid is and what type of year he had just because he's, you know, he's in Cincinnati for crying out loud. So it would be cool to see them make a run, change it up a little bit. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you. Appreciate the insight, Daryl. You stay safe. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.